0: Welcome to The Picklist, List, the podcast for curious food industry minds.
1: Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times.
0: We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce.
1: I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Laura. How are you?
0: Yeah, good, Julia. How are you getting on? The sun is still shining in the northeast. Have you had a busy week?
1: I know it's actually really nice and bright and warm again uh, today yes I've had a really busy week I'm on deadline this week I'm writing a massive uh, report on the circular economy which is really really interesting but uh, the deadline is now looming so I've been holed up uh, and just making sure I get the words down how about you?
0: Yeah, good, thank you. Basically, my week's been to stop trying to raid the fridge every two minutes. It's always too tempting when you're working from home. So (laughs) doing this with you today has been a good distraction.
1: Excellent. And we're really excited to say we have our first international guest this week as well, Richard Tufton.
0: It's so exciting. So Richard used to work for Dawn Meats and that's when I, I first met him uh, and now he's been living in the US in Austin, Texas for almost five years. So he's given us some great perspective not only on, on the meat category and his insight about what's happening over there uh, broadly with meat and livestock but also grocery more generally. So it's given us some brilliant insights on what's happening in the US and maybe things that will come over here.
1: And we're very excited to say that we also have a sponsor for this week's episode. It's Shopper Intelligence, the first and only syndicated measurement program built from the direct voice of food and drink shoppers. With unique storewide metrics in dozens of categories, giving you why and how shoppers buy, not just what they buy.
0: And if you'd like more information, go to shopperintelligence.com and the link is in the show notes.
1: Great. Let's start the show. Richard, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. So, tell us a little bit about yourself. How does a Brit end up in Texas involved in the meat business?
2: Yeah, so um, I moved over to Texas about four and a half years ago. I was working for a British meat company, well, an Irish meat company called Dawn Meats. And uh, one of the customers that I looked after was Whole Foods, who um, they head stores down in London, which is where I was living at the time. And through that relationship, I got to meet some of the American folk from Whole Foods who came over from Austin, Texas, which is where their corporate uh, office is located. Um, Whilst... All that was going on, I'd started uh, dating my now wife, who is a Texan from Austin, and so we had a few trips over for weddings and things, and really liked it over here in Austin. And so I kind of put the two things together and through my Whole Foods connections, uh, got a job uh, to work for one of their suppliers. Uh, my mission was to try and go over and help support um, suppliers who are in the kind of better for you space. Uh, looking to try to promote uh, better animal welfare, food quality, meat quality, all of those kind of things that were really important to me. And it was quite eye-opening for me to discover how industrial a lot of the American uh, meat world is. And so that happened yeah, about four and a half years ago. My wife was um, three months pregnant at the time when we moved over, and we now are here with a two-year-old and a, four, a two-year-old boy and a four-year-old girl, and uh, loving Austin, Texas life in quarantine.
1: And we're really proud to say you are first international guest as well on the show. Um, we're really excited to get your perspective on on so many of the the topics we'll be we'll be covering today, not least because you know meat standards in a U.S. UK context. Uh, was quite a hot topic at the moment as well so um, I think there'll be some really meaty topics for us to dive into. Um, Why don't you tell us about the first pick that you have for us?
2: Yeah so my first pick is from the New York Times. It's an article based on a couple of uh, offbeat comments that Trump made um, last week to the press and it's uh, the article's called um, Trump Floats Halt to U.S. Cattle Imports as Pandemic Hurts Ranchers. And the big problem that we've got in the States right now, and I'm sure in the UK too, is that the slaughterhouses and processing plants are, n- are way off full capacity. They're probably at about 60% capacity. And so what that means is you've got a lot of ranchers throughout the country who have animals that need to go to the next stage in the process, but that can't happen. And so there's a lot of very negative energy. And um, I guess these are all quite key voters in key states for, for Trump. And bear in mind, the election is coming up in November. So he's trying to do everything possible to show... Um, his voters that he's doing all he can to help them out. And, you know, there are some pretty huge arable um, livestock parts of the country. So the situation that he was commenting on last week is that a lot of cattle get imported from both Mexico and Canada live to be slaughtered in slaughterhouses that are quite near the border, but the American side of the border. And it is an interesting topic because there are... There is such a backlog of cattle over here right now, um, so why would you want to import animals from Mexico, for example? And the reason that exists in the first place is because most of the Mexican cattle are different to the American cattle, so they're mostly kind of Brahman cattle. So they're much cheaper. Um, the quality is different, and a lot of them will end up uh, in in hamburger meat, essentially, and um, about. The Americans are huge consumers of hamburgers and so that ground beef market is probably 45, 50% of all meat consumed is hamburger meat and so America needs sources of cheap cattle to Basically, put into into burgers, and whether that's coming in as live across the border from Mexico, or whether it's coming in as processed meat from, you know, most recently there were headlines about meat coming in from Namibia. That's all for that purpose to kind of prop up that part of the industry, which is such a big uh, way that um, Americans consume. So what Trump was basically saying was, we're going to think, we're going to consider putting an end to the the live cattle flow coming in from. Mexico and Canada. I don't think Canada's a mu- as much of a factor. It's the Mexican side that's that's more interesting, and obviously, when he said that, that was very popular with ranchers who are sitting there with lots of cattle that they 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 need to get through to the next part of the system. Um, but yeah, it's such an extreme time over here.
0: It's a fa- fascinating article on it and it's great to get your perspective of it on the ground. One thing I was wondering reading it is, you know, if you're a, a supermarket buyer and the, the demand for product is going up and up and I know food service it, it has dropped off but will continue to come back. Uh, will that actually drive more imported boxed product you know if uh, fair enough if trump's you know saying no no canadian no uh, mexican at live but you know if you need a stack of shelves does it drive actually more demand for namibian or whatever it may be if you're trying to keep your fixture full
2: yeah what my take on it is that imports are helping us right now as in Boxed, slaughtered, packaged meats coming in because that kind of bypasses the slaughterhouse, which is a bottleneck. But what it doesn't bypass are the processing plants, which are also a bottleneck. So it definitely helps because it kind of goes past one of the hurdles, but it doesn't jump the second one. So um, this meat still has to be processed. You can't put a, a sixty-pound lump of meat on a supermarket shelf. You've got to turn that into, you know, one-pound ground bricks of beef and um, things like that. So but it's definitely helping, and I think that's there's a lot of um, not misinformation but just um, not really understanding the situation properly and there' was, there was a viral video um, last week of a farmer um, getting really upset when he learned that meat was coming into the country, but actually that's helping because it's helping keep um, keep the demand keep the prices um, reasonable so buyers will keep buying um, but i can see why it's upsetting for these ranchers and they're sitting there with all these cattle and nowhere for them to go or pigs or chickens you know
0: and do you think and and i could talk about this all day and and i won't julia i promise but uh, (laughs) um tell me about um country of origin labeling do you think that'll drive a change in the states because i know the us haven't always been keen to go down that route but will this force that issue
2: Well, I think it might too, but I think, honestly, for now, they're wanting to keep their net as wide as possible. I think it's going to be a while until we see that come into play. But they're definitely under a lot of pressure to do that and, um, you know, labelling country of origin as being made in the U.S., um when actually the meat can come from elsewhere be processed and that's the label it's it's really confusing and it's extremely political and i just i can't see anything happening until after the election
1: has there been much from biden at all on um on on the situation in, in the feed sector are we getting a sense of what kind of messages he might be coming out with to go up against trump on um, um in the election
2: Biden hasn't really said too much about it, or if he has, I haven't. I haven't been following it. But I think, I mean, the truth is that both Trump and Biden will want will want the votes of um, rural America, and that means they need to look after the corn farmers and the cattle ranchers. And so, whatever they they're going to say to get the votes of of that huge population is what they they will say but um, honestly I, I haven't heard too much about what Biden's been. I'm weighing in with this.
1: It's a really fascinating article. I thank you so much for for sharing that, Laura. What's your first pick this week? My first pick is uh, an article from The Conversation, and
0: the two authors are, are two Kiwi um, university academics. Uh, and the the title is "Coronavirus has turned retail therapy into retail anxiety." keeping customers calm will be the key to carrying on and uh, as I've previously mentioned shopping is my hobby because that's how sad my life is so I was really interested uh, to to have a read of this and we have previously spoken about you know some of the differences that that we're seeing in retail particularly in the grocery sector Um, but this article is a little bit more broad-reaching and looking at things about um, a store atmospherics and and how important our sensory atmospherics will be going forwards so the first thing it says in the article is about noise, which is something that I've never even considered. But in New Zealand, um, the tips on how to stay safe uh, post-COVID is about reducing the noise in, um, in shops and in restaurants and keeping the, the music uh, volume low. Uh, and it's quotes that raised voices, it seems, can generate a wider moist breath zone that may increase the viral spread, which I hadn't even considered the possibility of you there and you're shouting and actually that could uh, raise the, the chance of getting coronavirus it looks about um, other things and it's interesting because it, we're seeing this already uh, in the UK and it was watching some things about M&S yesterday very similar retail guidelines in New Zealand recommend customers only touch and try merchandise they intend to buy well you know the environment that we've lived in for decades is all about hopefully that store theater and being involved and particularly in the clothing sector you want to be able to try on those items and it really really makes me think about the amount of online returns we're probably doing at the moment, probably myself included, about what's happening to those items. They surely must be getting repackaged and, and sent back out. And then the the other area that really um, uh, jumped out for me uh, from this article was about shopping as a sensory experience that will change. And it talks about cosmetics. And when we think about, you know, the big department stores and John Lewis talking about, you know, how they're going to start reopening over the next couple of weeks, that huge amount of uh, square footage that's given to cosmetics and perfume and that category that no longer are we going to be able to try and sample these sort of things really high margin products and without being able to how are people going to have the confidence and be able to to buy them and how it will actually change us going forward so I found it hugely interesting and and giving insights that I'd never even considered before but what were your thoughts what did you think Richard?
2: Um, Well uh, it made me wonder with everybody wearing masks presumably people's eye makeup game is going to have to really go up because we're all gonna so, but um yeah it was it was interesting um moist breath zone is a, is a is a gross expression isn't it i was like oh god that's now gonna make me think whenever i go about what people's moist breath zone is um and then also the bit where it talks about the uh the restaurant in new jersey where they put mannequins out um, that is going to be a bizarre experience if you ever have to go to a restaurant where there are going to be mannequins hanging out around you. But yeah, I thought it was fascinating. I mean, um, I've, as I mentioned, got two small kids, so no longer do we kind of browse the shops. If we're going shopping, it's, it's dedicated. We know what we're in there for. We'll go to, if, if possible, we'll find an app which says exactly where the item is in the store. We'll go there, get it, and leave. And I think there's going to be a lot more shopping like that where people do their research beforehand and go in to get the one thing and come out and i think yeah the days of try before you buy um obviously i'm not somebody who spends too much time in the makeup department but i should imagine they're really going to struggle and have to change change that up because it's going to be really focused buying um going forward but um yeah what do you think julia
1: I also, I loved the article. I mean, like you, moist breath zone is a phrase that's going to haunt me, I think. Um, But yeah, some really fascinating detail, I think, there around shopper behavior. And and the thing that really jumped out at me um, also was just the implications that has for some of the you know, revival of the high street projects that we've been seeing seeing recently. You know, so much of those are precisely about sort of injecting theater into stores, really making the most of having a physical location, trying to make sure that you sort of get away from that more transactional style of shopping and really offering an experience that you can't get online what do you do now, you know, when that sort of experiential shopping isn't, isn't possible? And the second point that I thought was really interesting, aside from the fact that I learned that Hilton Hotels is a partnership with a disinfectant brand now, that was, uh, that, that was quite interesting, um, is also this this sort of idea of reinventing the restaurant experience. And there is that incredibly creepy picture of the mannequins that are sort of trying to stop you from from getting too close to other guests. But it also reminded me of um, an initiative in Amsterdam, I think, where um, a, a restaurant there has sort of designed mini glass houses almost, where you can sort of sit in couples in your own little mini glass house and have a waiter come and sort of, you know, serve you your food in a, in a very safe and socially distanced way. I wonder whether we're going to start seeing more concepts like that. What was your first article, Julia. So my first pick this week is from The Economist, and it's an article called Farewell for Now to a Golden Age of Drinking, Um, and it's about how the coronavirus outbreak has hurt global booze sales. And I picked this article because my initial reaction when I saw the headline was, hang on a minute, I thought booze sales were booming. We've been seeing lots of headlines, um, you know, lots of coverage of record alcohol sales during the lockdown, latest Kantar figures that are out this week showing sales of alcohol were 50% higher than last year in the most recent four-week period. You know, lots of Uh, alcohol companies, alcohol brands have done some really interesting um, new online delivery and direct-to-consumer models. So um, it just jarred a little bit with with what I thought was happening out there. But what the article explains is that, yes, that is true. Uh, Sales of alcohol for in-home consumption are indeed doing very nicely. But there are, of course, parts of the market that are really, really suffering. And what's more, the article sort of looks ahead to what's coming down the line as well and why the sector might find itself into some trouble. And it really points to three reasons for that. There's a lockdown itself and what it's done to some really crucial sales channels. So we're talking about the hospitality sector, of course, You know, wine and spirit producers in particular so reliant on sales through bars and restaurants. That's not happening right now. And even if you can get the volumes back through in-home consumption. You're not getting those nice markups that you might be able to push through in some of those hospitality channels. Um, mass entertainment and sporting events, big impact on beer, wine, champagne as well, um, and travel. But of course, travel is a massive channel for, for the alcohol sector. Um, you don't have people going to airports in the um, at the moment. They're not killing time in the departure lounge and uh, stocking up on some nice pricey booze. Um, so again, That's obviously making a big dent in in brands' sales. The other big reason for why the alcohol sector is in for a tough time is about uh, economic hardship. We are going to emerge from this crisis into a pretty dire economic climate. People are going to have less disposable income. And so some of the big money spinners of recent years, more premium drinks, more artisanal drinks, the whole craft movement is, is really going to feel some pressure. And then the third reason that the article points to is about a wider demographic shift that was already happening before this crisis struck. Um, And that's really about younger consumers, Gen Z consumers, being less interested in alcohol than than older generations. We've had the rise of uh, no and low alcohol alternatives, but also um, the legal cannabis economy in in parts of the world where cannabis is now legalised. And they cite some quite interesting research that suggests that for some younger consumers, cannabis is an alternative to to alcohol. And that, of course, is is having an impact on, on booze as well. What did you make of it, Richard?
2: Yeah, a, a couple of things I took away from it. I think um, the direct-to-consumer aspect is going to be really important to whatever your business is, whether it's booze or bread or even meat. I think um, the companies that can master that and master the e-commerce space are going to be the ones that are going to survive and thrive going forwards. Here in Austin, there are a lot of craft breweries, and I think it's going to be um, the, the way they're going to survive is by delivering direct to people's homes um, and things like curbside collections, and the same way like a retailer is going to deal with it. Um, but it's going to be really, it's going to be really tough. For, for your craft brewery and um, you know I hope they find ways to survive but the ones that figure it out are going to be the the e-commerce direct consumers um, and then yeah the the whole um, legal cannabis um, thing is definitely a factor um, it's not something that I get involved with but over here you know there's a lot of noise about that and um, especially in some of the states um, Colorado, for example, it's a big thing, and I'm sure that has a huge impact on on sales of of alcohol. But yeah, that was my take on it. What do you think, Laura? I,
0: I um, was really taken by the Gen Z stat and the fact that I think it was the US, isn't it, has had four years of consecutive decline uh, of alcohol sales that are directly linked to that. And, you know, we've heard over the last few years about nightclubs closing and, you know, that that's not a cool place to go anymore, which makes me feel super old. Uh, and, you know, has that been driven by the Instagram culture that, you know, the, the youth of today is nervous about their image and what's posted when you know 20 years ago that that 20 30 years ago that that wasn't an issue so I I think it probably shows that we're somehow a little bit disconnected with that generation and need to track them really closely about what they're going to spend on going forwards and then the other thing I just listening to you both speak and I guess you say about curbside collection um, do you think the UK shot itself in the foot by the fact it doesn't really have any dedicated off licenses anymore you know Majestic are a big player but they've been uh, looking for change over the last six months or so but when you look at the Australian model and the whole bottle shop and the drive through and all that sort of stuff you know that they've got their own channel and footprint there where brands can do something different whereas in the UK, you've got on-trade and off-trade and a really different margin model. But what's it what's it like in the US, Richard? Is there a separate big off-license chains and that's kept separate than grocery?
2: Yeah, 100%. And it's kind of bizarre when you first get here and you think, oh, I'm going to do my shopping and I'm going to buy um, my alcohol at the supermarket and some of them don't offer alcohol. You have to do two trips. You'll go to the supermarket, get all of your groceries, and then you'll have to go to a dedicated off-license, um, many of which are drive-through, um, which kind of sounds weird when you think about drinking and driving, but that, yeah, many of them are drive-through and they're dedicated and they have separate licensing agreements and many of the supermarkets don't have those licenses. So yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely um, similar to how you're describing Australia.
1: Richard, tell us about your second pick.
2: Yeah, so my second pick um, is a podcast. This podcast was um, produced and put out by IRI. And the podcast was looking at what has happened in the last couple of months, specifically in the meat sector. Um, and it's it's really interesting. Um, I work for a company um, called My Natural Foods, and we have a brand called Laura's Lean. Um, and that brand has been tried by um, thousands of new shoppers than it's ever been tried before and historically we would have had to pay many many dollars to get that degree of trial and experience and one of the points the podcast makes is there, there are many brands out there like ours that have suddenly had this opportunity to have their product tried by all these new customers, and so the big um, challenge now is how do you keep the customer attention? So all of the marketing departments out there right now, including ours, are trying to figure out um, how to do that, so that when we come out of this, we still um, have those customers as regular customers. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. Um, the a lot of the shops have. Um, Trims down the number of uh, skews that they're offering. Um, and they're, I mean, the guy talked about, you know, instead of putting out um, a, a one pound pack of chicken, put out three one pound packs of chicken, you know, linked together. Um, so they've changed their offering to have um, to service the consumer that's now going less often and buying a bigger basket. He also talked about a lot of the shoppers getting new kit you know, air fryers, things which they, people hadn't um, tried before, and then um, going and getting recipes for these new bits of equipment that they hadn't tried before. So a lot of new proteins being tried, different cuts. What do you think about it, Laura?
0: A couple of things really jumped out at me. The turkey comments were really interesting in terms of you know more people are getting back into that category, cooking whole birds and uh, you know cooking something that's gonna last them a whole week. Um, and I guess we tried more of that over in the UK in some some promotions, but definitely in the US it seems to be working. And another thing probably obviously more so on poultry, but bone in cuts and, and dark meat were seen to be quite popular. And that makes me wonder when you're talking about prices going up if people people... people will uh, feel more confident about trading down into less expensive cuts because previously they probably didn't know what to do with it, but now they're going to have a bit more confidence because they've done that trial and error stuff. Um, And then one of the other things, which, again, we've seen from some of the data over here is about nostalgia and people getting back into something that they maybe did ages ago. And I suppose that's the the whole baking
1: trend as well, isn't it? You know, trying things you you, you maybe did, did when you were younger or back in the family unit. What I thought was really interesting was his comments about how happy shoppers have been to experiment with different cuts, because we had quite a big problem here with people sort of gravitating towards mints, for instance, almost as a default, easy option when you're trying to, um, you know, watch watch your spend, but also just do something that you can't really get wrong. What? what why do you think that is? That American shoppers have been um, more willing to experiment? Is there a different sort of level of of food education or attitudes towards different cuts to what we're seeing over here?
2: No, I think it's really just been forced out of necessity. So my personal experience, you will um, look online for availability or um, go to the store and you just get what is available. And the selection has been far reduced and Um, You know, if you go to try to buy chicken thighs, maybe you have to get wings or legs because there aren't thighs available, there isn't breast available or the cut that you're used to buying. That's been our experience. And Then you get home and you get on Google and find a nice recipe for chicken wings or whatever it is. So I think that's it's been um, led by necessity rather than anything else.
0: My second pick is an article from the Wall Street Journal, and this is um, um, because I love a CEO interview, as you know. So, this is Walmart's US boss expects coronavirus to alter shopping permanently. So, this is John Furner uh, talking to the Wall Street Journal um, about how he sees Walmart evolving, and he gives a little bit of insight about how their business has pivoted uh, over the, the last couple of months, at least. Um, It states in the article that U.S. e-commerce sales rose by 74% as more shoppers switched to online ordering, uh, which is is an interesting stat, but it gave a bit more insight into what Walmart have done. They switched on over almost 2,500 additional stores to ship out online orders in recent weeks. And this is, I guess, we're seeing a lot of this, aren't we, that these big central distribution centres can't cope with the demand and there's more picking happening in store and something that that we did see from the, the Dave Lewis interview and what Tesco are up to. They've also amalgamated the Walmart separate apps and amalgamating some of their teams as well. And this is all of a long-term push that they've had towards uh, Walmart Plus. Um, And this is to take on Amazon Prime. Uh, And they're obviously feeling the pinch uh, about Amazon Prime and seeing how they can take it on. As the interview uh, progresses, and um, he's challenged further about how this will, will go forward, it has been delayed, but he's still seeing that the Omni, channel experience uh, for retail is what he thinks shoppers will want so the whole bricks and clicks opportunity that the amazon don't have that he feels that that's going to set walmart apart um, he's also been tracking um who's been actually doing more um, online collections and it's no surprise it's those customers over 50 that's been doing that curbside collection and, and doing that more of online shopping and we probably would have traditionally thought they would be the last ones to get into this sector of, um, of ordering groceries. So, that's interesting that that's copied over into the US. He also mentions that the customer satisfaction scores we track for our pickup business has held up pretty well throughout the quarter. So, there's obviously amalgamation happening behind the scenes in terms of the merchandising teams coming together. We've delayed the Walmart plus push, but it, it's still happening and it's coming in time. Um, they're keen to keep, obviously, the omni-channel approach uh, and also to do more of that full fulfilment and picking from their their huge um physical estate so it was a little snapshot but as i say i do love to see behind the curtain of what they see us really are prepared to share as well and what they're not prepared to share what did you think richard that you know what what are you seeing on the ground in terms of walmart and what, what are your thoughts on the article
2: Walmart have really transformed their business fast in terms of a customer experience. So when quarantine hit, we have a Walmart um, a couple of miles away and I did curbside collect. So put the order in on the computer, you turn up into a parking spot and you had to call a number and tell them the number of parking spot you're in and the description of your car. And I pulled in and it took me four attempts to get through on the like it rung 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 until nobody answered four times and the whole experience probably took half an hour and then somebody came in and that bit was great they just put the um, food straight into the boot of your car and you go off then cut to two weeks later so six weeks after my first experience this time I pulled into the car park my phone knew that I was at Walmart it said oh we've noticed you've arrived which parking bay do you want to park in and what color is your car? And these were like, they came up on the screen. And so then, then all I had to do was say the parking number, pick the color of the car. And within two minutes, somebody was at the back of my car loading the groceries in. And that was it. Two minutes, turn around. And then I'm off and no contact at all. And it was it was pretty impressive. Uh, so I think the other supermarkets are going to start to um, a- a- adapt as quickly as they are. Um, HEB are doing a similar kind of thing, just to be fair to the retailers here in, in Austin.
1: Richard, I th- there was something really interesting in the article that made me think of a point you raised a little bit earlier when you spoke about all these new shoppers trying cuts, trying meats, trying products they perhaps hadn't tried before. And the challenge that marketing departments in in all sorts of categories and at retailers now have in, you know, turning these first time triers into repeat buyers. um, That's clearly a big challenge for online grocery now as well. You've got this fantastic opportunity where groups that perhaps wouldn't have been tempted to try things like curbside pickup before are using online but how do you now you know how do you take them from that first sort of distress purchase and actually turn them into into repeat customers who are going to be choosing that option on an ongoing basis um that strikes me as a as a huge challenge figuring out loyalty and converting those people into um second third and, and so on buyers must be a, a massive challenge now
2: yeah and one thing um which we've noticed and we've seen across the country both in the company i work for and uh, yeah across the country is that um meat with claims attached to it has done really well so um grass-fed organic um You know, free range, antibiotic free, hormone free, those uh, sales of those items have outperformed the rest of the category um, because people have more time at home to really um, look into and understand what it is that they're buying.
1: The other thing that it made me think of, though, is the importance of data. You know, we talk quite a lot about um, the potential around direct to consumer models, and of course, if you are trying to convert some of these first time buyers into repeat customers, you know, if you own that customer relationship and you have an email address, you have a way of actually following up on on some of those purchases. Um, you you obviously have have a slightly different lever that you could potentially pull than if you um, if you don't have um, direct access to data. My final pick of the week is an article from The Guardian, and it's an article by Sharon Cale called People Were Like Animals, How Supermarket Staff Watched the Coronavirus Crisis Unfold. I really like this article because it provides a perspective on the outbreak from the front line. And it gives a voice to supermarket workers and how they have experienced this um, crazy period in in their working life. It's really brilliantly written. It's got lots of great detail and observations. There's uh, Layla, the waitrose worker, talking about how everyone is buying booze and fancy meat and manuka honey. Um, But actually the the main thing you take away from it is, is some quite harrowing stuff, you know. Um, staff talking about how people just totally lost their temper in store at the height of panic buying abusing staff shouting swearing demanding to speak to multiple layers of store management because they just cannot accept that they're not allowed to buy 20 tins of tomatoes and just generally you know a lack of of respect um towards staff and you know when you read the article you can sort of You can really sense the fatigue and exhaustion and exasperation in some of the stories that that they're telling. And what I thought was was really interesting and and again, really quite worrying was um, some research that had been done um, by the University of Gloucestershire into the health and well-being of frontline workers during the pandemic. And the research included supermarket workers and, and found that they were unsurprisingly really very stressed by the experience. And One of the researchers who conducted the study, Dr. Rachel Sumner, she makes an interesting point in that she says um, supermarket workers perhaps felt particularly stressed because by and large they did not sign up to be frontline workers. You know, if you are a nurse, you're a doctor you are um, a firefighter you go into your line of work with some sort of knowledge that you're probably going to be in quite stressful situations and at times quite confrontational situations that is generally not the case if you go to work in a supermarket so if you suddenly find yourself in a situation like that I think it's a real shock um, that you're perhaps not not prepared for And the article overall just raises so many questions about what we can and should be doing within the industry to better protect staff in store, um, what we can do to ensure that abuse uh, towards supermarket staff is recognised as a serious problem. There have been some really good campaigns within the grocery sector already looking to raise awareness of the issue, but clearly more needs to be done. We need to make sure that message gets through to uh, members of the public and that anyone who does abuse uh, supermarket workers is held accountable as well. Richard, how has what's been your experience of, of being in staff and, and the way the public has generally sort of engaged with, with supermarket workers? Have you come across anything that's, uh, you know, sort of sounds as worrying as some of the stuff that was reported in this article?
2: I mean, I haven't experienced it personally but I've definitely seen on social media a lot of examples of stores with strict mask policies and um, members of public challenging that and citing you know it's our constitutional right the last time I checked this was a free country and stuff like that and um Costco went viral last week with one of the Costco employees standing firm and basically taking the trolley away from the customer who was saying that kind of stuff. And he said, I'm a social media influencer and um, you need to let me through. And and he was kicked out of the store. And there have been several examples of that um, over here. Um, But yeah, I mean, it does make you think, you know, uh, not everyone goes to the hospitals to see what's happening there and to be exposed but everyone has to eat and everyone has to eat right now by going to supermarkets so the whole population is coming into contact with you know the staff and i do i really feel for them one part said um only senior managers were authorized to bring out um toilet paper to the aisle because they knew it was going to be such a big rush and people elbowing each other black friday style out of the way um so i thought that was really interesting and, and that they would have to be the ones that would um police the queuing and making sure that people the correct distance apart and these are skill sets which they certainly would have signed up for when they got the jobs and the actual security team um were struggling and they said shoplifting was on the rise and uh, you know it's It's challenging, and I'm sure that all of the supermarkets, both in the UK and the US, are having to adapt you know the kind of staff they get and and how to deal with it but um yeah from a personal point of view I just really feel for the staff
0: yeah and I uh, similar to you I was really taken by that shoplifting point too not only did I have a huge amount of sympathy with the the, the people who are interviewed but the fact that the security staff now in these stores are so busy trying to make everyone queue properly and be safe that that shoplifting just gone through the roof uh, I have to admit I have seen some not the shoplifting bit but the abuse to staff at a, at a relatively low level when it, just pre-lockdown um, I was queuing um, to, to pay and uh, a woman in front of me was having an argument with the cashier about how many yogurts she could buy and she said oh no it's just three items um, of you, you you, uh, the, the same skew you can have and, the, and a bit of an argument ensued and the supervisor was called over and it just feels like so unfortunate you know these people are working so hard to try and feed the nation so I, I give uh said cashier a lot of sympathy and just said you know you're doing an amazing job and thank you so much we are so grateful but it does still shock me there is people that are still and maybe they're under stress at home and, and we don't quite know but that are still t- taking it out on people as I say that haven't seen this necessarily as a vocation like the frontline staff but uh, have stood up and been absolutely counted when we've really needed them
2: yeah and I think that's right I think it's it's led out of fear and desperation and certainly at the start it did get a bit lord of the flies over here as I'm sure it did with you because people just didn't know and they were they were terrified and you know maybe they've got families and they don't have a lot of income and maybe they just lost their job and um, like you say I think it's you know it's it's easy maybe for me to sit here I've still got a job and you know, I'm in a really lucky position. I think there's a lot of desperation and fear out there that's led people to behave out of character to how they would normally behave. And hopefully that's all starting to settle down a bit now. But um, yeah, it's, it's an extreme situation and it's definitely forced um, families and people to breaking point for, for sure.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today, Richard. We're so lucky that you're our first international guest and given us some amazing insight across not only the meat category, but what's happening in grocery generally in, in the US. And we'd love to have you back if we can hold you to that.
2: Yeah, absolutely, I've, I've enjoyed it. And it's, um, it's interesting from my point of view to get your perspective on how things are um, back home. And yeah, I, with pleasure, I'll, I'll help share how things are going over here in, in the US and in Texas. And yeah, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me
1: brilliant thank you richard thank you so much and stay safe that's all we have for you this week thank you so much for listening you can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk if you enjoyed our show please subscribe give it a rating and leave a review it makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the food industry who'd enjoy listening to the pick list
0: thanks again for listening see you next time